Well, good morning. If you're able, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5 quickly. I am preaching through Genesis 49, which references in its glorious climax this future conquering king who is likened to a lion. And what I want us to do is sort of to tie together the original audience who would be hearing these words from Moses as they're on the precipice of entering into the promised land, a place that has been guaranteed and promised by Yahweh, and yet there's still kinds of uncertainty. And what they need to hear are words of sure triumph, words that despite maybe how they are feeling or what they are fearing, that God is at work. And we're going to see that the words that Jacob gives, or Israel gives, to his sons are not just sort of, I hope this happens, or here's what I sense. But these are commands. It's a prophetic oracle. And the original audience was to be encouraged that God was on his throne, and that a king would come, and that the yearning and the longing for the restoration of God's order and his rule and his blessing that begins actually Genesis, though lost through sin in Genesis, is promised to be overcome in Genesis. And we see that what is promised in the first book of the Bible is fully brought about in the last book of the Bible. And remember that John is writing to saints that are uncertain, that are longing, as it were, for this king to come and for him to put under his feet all of their enemies. The reason I'm doing this is because the original audience um, has a lot more in common with us than we sometimes think. Now, you might not be Jewish. You might not be living in the land of Egypt wondering how you're going to get into a place called Canaan or Palestine. However, you have lots of uncertainties in your heart wondering what is going on. Is God really on his throne? Is he really bringing his reign? Well, let's listen to what God says through the Apostle John. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? It's sort of like, who is the one who has ruling authority to command the destiny of the future? Because remember that John has been exiled on Patmos, that, that he himself has experienced severe persecution. And as you read through Revelation, you see persecution is intense. And so he wants to know that the one who is sitting on the throne is really directing and sovereign over the events that he's not just watching as a, as a passive bystander, but he's actually orchestrating all things to conform to his perfect will. And, and so this angel, like John said, well, who is able to? Who is able to receive the scroll? This is more than just the news of the past, but who is able to take the news of the future? And no one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Listen to John. He's crying. Why? Because he's suffering. 
wondering, will this go on indefinitely? I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is how the original audience would have felt as they were crying out being ruled by a tyrant named Pharaoh. For 400 years, the chosen people living outside the promised land wondering, who is in charge here? Right? Who, who's driving this electric car? And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion. Definite articles are important. Not just any old lion. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So as to open the scroll and its seven seals. But we'll stop there. I will open us up in a word of prayer, but... I want us to see here that the hope of Israel is no different than the hope of us this morning. A conquering king. A lion from the tribe of Judah. One who descends from David's royal progeny. A seed who will finally put Satan under his foot. One who will conquer. One who will reverse the curse that was brought in by the first Adam. Son of man who will restore God's blessing and bliss to his elect people. And actually, as we celebrate baptisms this morning, I hope your spirit's grown by the Holy Spirit for Christ to return in the culmination of his reign. Actually, let me just tell you why it's important to listen to music and to pray for one another. All week I've been thinking, how, how in the world am I going to condense the richness of Genesis 49 into a shortened sermon for a baptism service? And I got a text from Nathan this morning. And he's praying. I know many of you are praying, but you have no idea. And about 20 minutes later, a wonderful hymn came to mind. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed. His reign on earth begun, and I needed to remember that though there are people in our congregation who are hurting and suffering, though there's wars, and though there's all kinds of fears of, of, of not just inflation in our country, but you see governments crumbling and nations sinking. His reign on earth begun. His reign on earth begun. We're celebrating the reign of Christ and the salvation of Joel and the salvation of Johnny. Christ is on his throne. He's directing history. He has received the scrolls from the right hand of the Most High. Christ is ruling. He is ascended, celebrating that on Pentecost. And I told Nathan, your prayers mean more to me than knowing what 10,000 commentators say about Genesis 49 because I started, maybe not weeping, but tears of joy. Christ is on his throne. Christ is returning. Great joy, great joy of this ruling lion. I pray that you will sense some of that even this morning as we baptize some of the fulfillment, actually, of nations and of peoples who obey him. Baptism is obedience. And every time we celebrate baptism, we sing and we celebrate Genesis 49. And we long for its culmination. So let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Oh, how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was seemingly defeated, yet taking death, and through death, conquering death, and rising from it, victorious. And oh, how we long for that last enemy to be put under his foot. And oh, how we long for the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Oh, Lord, how we long for Eden to be restored. Oh, how we long for a good king to rule as God among men. And so, Father, I would just pray, would you help me to say what you would have me to say from this text, and that our hearts would sing. Oh, Father, would you fill us this week with songs of deliverance? And would you fill us with the certain expectation of Christ's imminent return? And not just to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel, but to eagerly anticipate it with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Father, be glorified. May your son's reign increase even this morning as you save. I pray that you would be transforming sinners like Judah. I pray that you would be reaching into this auditorium this morning with your invisible hand of grace and performing heart surgery and bringing about blessing, Lord, in your elect and through your elect and to your elect for the good of the nations. Father, please hear us. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 49. Let's work through it. Now, I'm not going to do a verse by verse. One, in the interest of time. Um, but two, to highlight, I think, what Moses would have us to focus on. If you were to break down Genesis 49, you would see that there are 12 pronouncements as it were, blessing, though blessing isn't always what you think it is. But as we've seen in Genesis 37 to 50, this Toledot, this generations of Jacob, that two of his offspring have kind of been vying for who we think will be the promised deliverer of Genesis 3. And were you to read initially in Genesis 37, you would think it's Joseph. But we've been sort of watching as the narrative has unfolded that, it's almost, did anyone see the Kentucky Derby last week or the highlights of it? The reason I say that is because I'm a Manitoba boy. And Christina said that the horse that won it was an 80 to, 80 to 1 uh, underdog. And, and this morning, it, it sort of reminded me, Christina showed me the, the replay. And, you know, they're, the, the announcers or the play-by-play, -play, if that's a, such a thing in, in horse races, and they had in their mind a couple of favorites, and they were focusing on them the whole time. And then what they, they did is they put a little highlight on the 80-to-1 on the, on the horse from Manitoba, or the parents, good stock from Manitoba. Always be thankful for good stock from Manitoba. And, uh, and you could just see him at the very end. And with like two seconds to go, they're like, and something wins. And, and that's what you see actually happening in Genesis 49. You're like, Joseph's going to be our guy. He's the, he's the odds favorite. And the one you would have never expected. He's turned. And he's conquered. And it's a wonderful picture of what God is doing. 
through this son, this seed called Joseph. Now, or Jacob, uh, Judah. Too many J's. Joel, Johnny, lots of J's. It's a J morning. Right, and so we have six verses that are allocated to Joseph, who we saw last week is receiving the double blessing of the firstborn. And six verses are also ascribed to Judah. And the reason why I want to highlight only those two is because it picks up actually in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons. He gathered them. And he said, gather yourselves together that I shall tell you what will happen in days to come. And that's a, a very interesting Hebrew phrase. The LSB actually takes it literally. It says, in the last days. Some translations will say, in latter days. And this term has to be ter- interpreted in context. And, and what I want to show you this morning, that days to come are speaking of days in the nearer future and the last days. Okay, and I'm borrowing this from, from a guy named Paul Twist. Well, actually, I've, I've been sneaking about this the whole time. But, but what, what Jacob is doing is he's blessing Joseph with, with as it were, earthly blessings in, in the near. As the people of Israel are delivered out of Egypt, and they, they start to see these blessings in time and space in the conquest. You can read about that in Joshua and following. But you, you see that those blessings begin to be lost through sin. So in latter days, God is going to bless Israel as characterized by Joseph. And they come into the land, but they're actually going to need a further or fuller deliverance. They're going to need a fuller or or final blessing. And what they're to remember is not just the blessing promised to Joseph, but increasingly through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we begin to long for the blessing to Judah. So you should underline in days to come, and you should write, in the last days, or in latter days. And I actually thought of this, I'm going to beat Daryl to it, that they're actually latter-day saints, even in the Old Testament. Right? And so they're longing for God's promises to come to pass, and, and, and there's a taste of it. There's the fruit of it, literally. It's the Hebrew word para to mean fruitful. Right? And so in, in, in Joseph, we see the first fruits of God's blessing that the people experience in the land. And yet, as you read through the Old Testament, you realize that there's more, greater blessings. And and what we should do is say, those blessings are fully realized in Judah. The firstborn blessing is given to Joseph, but the greater blessing, kingship, (laughs) is given to Judah. Okay, and so in the last days, Israel is longing for this Davidic king. So read your Old Testaments that way. Read them that way. That they're longing for this Davidic king to come in and do what Joseph could never do. That he could offer himself in the place of his brothers that forgiveness and redemption might take place, which is what we see in Genesis 38 and 43 and 44 as Judah embodies the true blessing that God's people definitely need. Now, the other brothers are there because there are 12 tribes in Israel, but I'm not going to focus on them. I'm going to focus primarily on the preeminence of Judah. Now, notice in verse 1, 
that Jacob is speaking like a prophet. This is an oracle. He's not saying, I hope this happens. He is prophesying. I got a good quote from a commentator named Alan Ross. Listen to this. He said this, prophecy was, and I would say is, given by God to sustain people through their barren and sometimes dismal experiences to show that God has planned their future. So, so Israel needs to hear that as they're groaning and moaning in Egypt. Right? As they're passing on through tradition, God's word and his promise that he's going to visit them and he's going to deliver them and bring them into the promise. They need prophetic words. And I would say we need it the same. You know what you need this morning? Is to hear that the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome. That's why I read Revelation 5. You need those words. God gives prophetic utterance to sustain his people and to show them what he is doing. And that's what Jacob is doing here. Not so much for his sons, right? They're living a good life. They're being fruitful and multiplied. He's saying this ultimately for the gener subsequent generations who will struggle and suffer and wonder, what is God doing? Jacob says these are going to happen in latter days and in the last days. It's an eschatological statement. And so he gathers his sons together. And notice here, he passes by Reuben and Simeon and Levi, which we saw last week. And what Jacob is doing here is he's picking up from the sons that Leah had. Now, you're going to have to go and read this. If you're a guest here, I'm trying not to be overly um, technical or, or overly verbose in, in previous sermons since you haven't listened to them. But, but Jacob, he had two wives who were sisters and with them two other concubines. And so the less loved daughter, Leah, the one with weak eyes, she gives birth to the first four sons. And Reuben is the firstborn. But the blessing is not going to come through Reuben because Reuben defiled Jacob's bed. And you can go and read about that uh, in chapter 35. Yes, there are blessings for Reuben, but he has given up the rights of firstborn through his sin. And then you move on to Simeon and Levi. That's numbers two and three. They also forfeit their blessing. You remember what happened in Shechem in chapter 34. And so we see here that, that, that Jacob, yes, there are blessings, but he's actually rebuking his sons, reminding Israel that actions have consequences. And I, I'm going to follow, I think, what a lot of commentators, Waltke and, and, and Hamilton, say is that Jacob is perhaps rebuking his sons because they haven't repented yet. Because you're going to be thinking, well, Judah kind of messed it up too. But Judah repented. Judah was transformed. Judah began to sacrificially put himself in place of his brothers for God's glory and the purpose of God's kingdom. And so on his deathbed, perhaps, perhaps, he's rebuking the first three sons, giving them an opportunity to repent, because if you do not repent, you will not experience God's blessings. And so we move from one, two, and three to number four. We're going to focus mostly now on Judah. 
It's emphatic, not only because we understand our New Testaments, but even in the Hebrew, and it's a play on words. The name Yehuda comes from a Hebrew word that means to praise. And so you have Yehuda, Ata, Yehudcha. It sounds almost identical in Hebrew. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought the brothers were to bow down and to praise Joseph, to which I remind you of the Kentucky Derby, the one you thought was going to win in a strange turn of events has come from behind and has won. So it's obviously not Reuben or Simeon and Levi, but it's actually Judah. Right? If you're reading through, you think it's definitely going to be one of Rachel's sons. Why? Because that's who Jacob loved most. He loved Rachel. So of course he's going to confer blessing to one of Rachel's sons. He does, but not the blessing, which always just reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. Right? You say, okay, if it's not going to be one of Rachel's sons, then it's going to be the firstborn of Leah. No, it's the fourthborn. God is just so inscrutable. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemy. Remember, this is prophetic. And it was fulfilled initially in, in the reign of King David. Go and read 2 Samuel 7, which is the Davidic covenant. And then go and read chapters 8 to 9 and see what David does. He's conquering his enemies. He's putting his hand on their neck. Right? He's not feeling for their pulse. It was, it was this, this picture of ruling authority. That we, you have been conquered. You, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Actually, Matthew Henry said, look up Psalm 1840. And it says uh, in the English versions, they shall give their back to you. But the Hebrew says, they will give their neck to you. Talking about David and his conquering. And so here we have Jacob, or Israel, prophesying that from his loins, a seed will come who will conquer all their enemies. Now, remember the initial audience. This is, this is a nation that is enslaved to the greatest power on earth. So words of prophecy are meant to give them hope because God's words don't return void. And somehow, some way, this one from Judah, he will be praised by his brothers. Why? Why will Judah's brothers praise him? Because he will take their place for their salvation. We've seen that in Genesis. And we see it most fully in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2. He comes down. The eternal Son of God comes down into the, into the world and he comes for his brothers. And he becomes the worship leader. And his brothers not only worship with him, they worship him. Your brothers shall praise you. That's fulfilled in the person and work of the greater David. And one day, dear beloved, the way I understand Revelation, is that he is going to come and he is going to put all of his enemies under his feet, which is also in 1 Corinthians 15. And Satan will fully and finally be defeated and Genesis 3.15, fully fulfilled. So as we focus on Judah, look at this might. Now, put in your head, remember that God's ways are not our ways. He is going to conquer through substitution. And so you're already putting into your mind, you know, like, you know, you're, you're putting on like, okay, oh, he's got big, 
you know, like the, the Mel Gibson sword and Braveheart, and he's got this big shield. Remember, he is going to conquer, and he's going to put, as it were, his enemy's neck under his feet. And the great switch is actually going to be not through triumph as we see, but actually through substituting himself on the cross. Your father's son shall bow down before you. And again, you think of, wait a minute, Genesis 37. Right? Are they to bow down before Joseph? They did. Remember? They bowed down to him. That prophecy in Genesis 37 was fulfilled. This is a new one. All of Jacob's sons, the elect of Israel, are not going to bow down before a seed of Joseph. That happened. All of Jacob's seed will bow down before a Judahite, a king. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And amazingly, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, not only his elect will give him homage, every day will bow. Heaven and earth. And a, a faint shadow of the one whom God has always destined from Genesis 3 on. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he whose right it is comes, and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. Christian standard. It's his right. Why alone can Jesus have the scepter? And why can he command the obedience of the nations? We see it in the book of Revelation. We, we read it. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom of priests to God. Why can David not, as it were, have this scepter? Why can David not command the obedience of people? Because David never died for the sins of the nations. But one who would proceed, as it were, from his loins would. Until tribute comes to him. Oh, I'd love to get into this. You see this especially in the book of Isaiah, how the nations come and they bring their tribute to this king. Now, of course, people will interpret when that happens differently, but at the end of the day, this is what the, the, this king will, he will command, but his people will joyfully bring. This never happened in the Old Testament. David conquered, right, go and read again, 2 Samuel 8 and 9. He conquered some nations. The queen of Sheba, she came to Solomon. But it's nothing like Genesis 49, which is why the people of the Old Testament were crying out, as were, how long? When are you coming, Yahweh? And so God gives his people prophecy to sustain them. In Genesis 49, and all throughout the Old Testament into the New. See, read the Bible that way. Not just to learn facts, but it's God's word that is meant to sustain us. It is meant to, to enable us to press on in hope. Hope is, it is so little preached upon. This is, what, this is what Moses needs. It's what the people of Israel need. It's what you need. And what are words of hope? God is king. And he will surely bring his reign and blessing through his offspring. I'm not a great rapper. 
right? But he's king and is, will bring through his offspring. And we see this in Genesis 49. And we long with the Israel of old for this king to come and to, ro- to right all wrongs and to rule as God always intended Adam to rule for blessing. Until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So let me quickly, quickly, quickly tie this into the gospel. I quoted this long before I studied this last week. Romans 1.5. You know, I'm tired of just turn there in your Bible. Okay, that I'm commanding you. These frame the mid, like, I think we're going to Romans in September, I think. But here's Paul, who has received grace and apostleship from Jesus, who according to the flesh comes from David. He's a seed. The LSB translates it seed. He's the seed of David according to the flesh. But according to the flesh, the seed of David could never have the obedience of the nations, which is why he dies and is raised. But he's raised by the spirit of holiness. And now he's the son of God in power. He's God's ruling king. Romans 1.4 is Genesis 49.8 through 12. And what does this king require? Well, let's see. Verse 5, talking about Christ. Through him we receive grace and apostleship. For what? For what? For obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. Paul is not word for word quoting Genesis 49 here. But I would say Paul for sure has Genesis 49 in his mind. So that's how, that's how, Gen, that's how Romans begins. Now, go to chapter 15. I'm tying this in to our day and our age and how baptism fits into this. Okay, so right after he says stop arguing because when you're arguing over theological differences, you forget the mission of God. He says this, for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. What are the promises given to the fathers? Through you, Judah, king's coming. And the the nations will bow their knee to him in glad submission. And he will rule over them as he rules over Israel. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you. What's the Hebrew word to give praise again? Shudah, yada. The Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Joel, are you, are you Jewish by nature? No. Johnny, are you Jewish by nature? No. Okay, so this is how Genesis 49 fits in to 2022 in a baptism service. Christ came as the true offspring of David, the true seed of the woman. So that the Gentiles, whom God loves as much as the Jews, would glorify God in Christ for his mercy. As it is written, I will give praise to your name among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. You see why Paul was passionate about missions? Because God promised it. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come from the root of Jesse. That's David's dad. And he who arises to what? Rule over the Gentiles. That's Genesis 49. In him shall the Gentiles what? Say, yes. Here it says hope. So Moses is writing that the Jews might hope in this coming deliverer. And the Jews did believe it was Messiah. By the way. And now Paul is writing to suffering Christians that they too might hope in Messiah. 
Wonderful. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And later on in chapter 15, which I'm not going to get into, he says that he's going to bring the obedience of the Gentiles. Now turn over one more page, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 16. And look in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, right? revelation, prophecy, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Okay, I'm not going to get into that yet, but it now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets like Moses and Jacob, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the Gentiles. Leading to what? Obedience of faith. So Paul is just obsessed with this section about Judah being promised a scepter. Judah putting his feet on the necks of his enemies. Judah ruling and receiving tribute from the nations. Judah receiving obedience of the peoples. I'm almost on verses 11 and 12, and I'm just going to say this quick. This is new creation language. It's, it, uh, one commentator says, it's not meant to be exhaustive. It's just giving you a picture. And if you're a Jew and you read verses 11 and 12, you think, it ain't never been like this. This sounds like paradise. Meaning what? That this coming ruler, not Joseph, but Judah, will bring in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells, wherein there is human flourishing, wherein creation is prosperous again. Right? The promised land was only a, a picture of it. Remember the big clusters of grapes and a plant flowing with milk and honey? That's just a picture of what we're longing for. If you're a Christian, you're longing for this. You're longing for wine. I'm a teetotaler. You ain't going to be a teetotaler in the new heavens and the new earth. And I'm not even trying to be brash. I'm just saying, read Isaiah 25. That the Jews always linked the new heavens and the new earth and God's reign to things like fig trees and enjoying the best of the wine. Wine is going to be so prosperous. There's going to be so much of it that you're going to like do your dishes in wine. You're going to have baths in wine. You're not like, hey, the donkey's going to eat all the, wine, all the vines here. Don't let him do that. It's okay. There's lots. So, so what Jacob is doing here is he's, he, he's giving them in the language they know what their heart is longing for. This is a picture of Eden for them. Well, God gives us a picture of Eden in the last book of the Bible, not just the first book. That after this one conquers, his reign will know no end. And one day his people will experience and enjoy forever what their hearts have been longing for. Edenic paradise to be restored. Never mind, oh, I'm finally going to have white teeth. Ah, okay, okay, maybe you'll have perfect white teeth. But the picture here is of prosperity. It's not, it's not always a bad word. It's a wonderful picture of what will happen. So, so Joseph, you can read it. I'm not going to preach it because I've obviously gone way longer than I should have. But Joseph 22 through 26, he's going to enjoy, as it were, these earthly blessings in latter days but what will sustain God's people through those latter days into the latter latter days is this reigning king who brings Eden back. And I think that's how Moses would have us to read it. Why do I say that? I'm going to close with verse 28. 
All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. You've got a threefold blessing here. This is hearkening upon the threefold blessing of Genesis 12.3, which hearkens upon the, the, the blessing in Genesis 1-11. to You just got to trace these things through or pay a pastor handsomely to do so for you. Right? And, and so the Jew would be reading verse 28 and they're like, this sounds that through somehow Jacob, the promises made to Abraham to the woman are being fulfilled and blessing and blessing and blessing. I'll give you a good quote and I'll close. God's purpose in Genesis is to create the world for blessing and then restore the world to blessing through a promised seed. And Jacob is screaming, it's Judah. And I am proclaiming to you this morning, that's Jesus Christ. Moses goes to great length to connect blessing to the seed of Jacob. And I will say something like Paul. You will never experience the true blessing, which is God's favorable disposition to you in his presence with you. You will never experience the true blessing of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? What Moses is groaning for, I declare to you this morning, Jesus Christ, he is the source and substance of the blessing that Moses could only write about. To which Paul would say, grace to you and peace. Right? From God our Father, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, having predestined us for adoption as sons to himself in him. To the praise of the glory of his grace which is what we're celebrating. So, so Moses talks about a time of a coming one to whom the obedience of the people will be for him. And when Johnny and Joel go down under those waters, they're obeying King Jesus' edict, his command. Go there! All authority, heaven and earth, has been given to me. I am the Son of God raised in power. It's mine. David just been holding on to the scepter. Jesus ascends and he takes the scepter from the right hand of God and he says, rule now and make disciples of all nations. So your act of baptism is a picture of Jesus' rule and reign promised in, in Genesis 49. That you are bowing your knees to King Jesus. You're calling him Lord, Adonai, Master. I will obey you. And in that, I will experience your great blessing. Well, I probably said more than I should have. Thank you for praying. I love the gospel, and I pray that we will love it more and proclaim it, and that we will not rejoice in Joel or in Johnny, but we will rejoice in King Jesus. His scepter is swaying as these brothers go under the waters. They've died with him in his death, and they've been raised with him in his conquering resurrection. So preach this to the nations. Preach it to the ends of the nations for the glory of Christ, because he's coming back. And the spirit who is the first fruit of our enjoyment of King Jesus' reign is reminding you there's more to come. Let me pray, and then we'll bring the brothers up, and Marvin and I will um, baptize. Who's first? Is it you, Joel? Johnny's first. Okay, but let me pray, and then we'll come up, and we'll baptize you in the triune name. Father in heaven, how we love you. And Lord, we see how important all the blessings are to all the 12 sons, and how the, 
the sons and the grandsons and the great-grandsons can, can find, as it were, their place in redemptive history and, and why they live, why they, where they live, and they can all trace it back to your goodness. And yet, Lord, there seems to be a, a blessing to, to one of the sons that will extend beyond the borders of Israel, that will include not only the Gentiles, but the ends of the earth. And we celebrate and we, we praise you that he has come and that he rules and that it's a good rule. And under his rule, there is prosperity, there is peace, and there is blessing. No, Lord, help us to long more for his return, his sure, guaranteed return. We're not just only in the inner man, but even as it were in the outer man. We may rejoice and praise and live in humble obedience and gratitude and submission and joy and every other emotion you created in Christ. We pray, Lord, that even this morning you are stirring up the hearts of many. Father, I pray that even Jacob's last words to his sons would be heard by everyone this morning. That if, that if one lives in constant rebellion and rejection of this king, they will never experience your blessing, but only your cursing in this life and in the life to come everlasting cursing. Oh, that their hearts would tremble. And oh, that our hearts would rejoice. That here is Christ, as it were, the razor's edge. Blessing to those who belong. Cursing to those who don't. Father, please, in your mercy, draw your elect to yourself. And be pleased to use us. With your prophetic word, grant us, Lord, fresh courage, fresh joy, fresh faith fresh resolve to preach Jesus to the ends of the earth and to bring all the nations under his glorious reign. In his name, amen.